Good morning. Let's open our time together with a word of prayer, if we could. Our Father, we do come before you with thanksgiving this morning, with joy in our hearts that we could come together as the body of Christ. Such a great privilege we have to uh, fellowship together and to be united in our beliefs and our understanding of who you are. Lord, thank you for your scriptures that we look into this morning. Pray that you would illumine our minds and make it clear, Lord, what you intended to communicate to us through these passages in Daniel. Thank you so much for the perspective that they give us that will strengthen us even in the days in which we live. And Lord, thank you for your great plan, which you are working according to your good pleasure. Lord, uh, we know that you are in control of all things and that you are sovereign over your creation. And Lord, that causes us to give you praise and honor for you are to be high and uplifted. And that's our desire this morning, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Well, this is week number 33 in our study of the book of Daniel. And what I want to try and do today is kind of step back and do us, we'll kind of look at both chapters 7 and 8 um, to get a good bearing on what they show us, kind of summarizing all the things that we've talked about. Because as you go into chapter 9, an understanding of chapter 7 and 8 are very important. Uh, otherwise, you begin, and it's easy to do this, to get confused about the time frames that are being referenced, the things that Daniel sees. Um, you know, some of these that we've seen are fulfilled in the short term. Some of them are never fulfilled until the long term. Um, so I want to try and make some sense of that today out of 7 and 8, and then look at chapter 9 as we'll get into it um, with that perspective of what 7 and 8 teach. And for me, I think 7 and 8 are pretty clear. You get into 9 and it gets a little more difficult and a little more confusing. And even the end of chapter 7 can be somewhat confusing. So we just try and summarize this morning and take a step back and take a look at what we've talked about. We spent the last two weeks looking at the person in history known as Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a Seleucid king um, who reigned in 175 to 164 BC. And for me, I mean, we looked at a lot of different things. This is 375 years after Daniel wrote what he wrote in the book of Daniel. So it, it is distant future. You can think back, we were talking a few minutes ago. If you go back 400 years in time, you know, the world was very much different. I mean, 1622 was where you would be. Um, you know, the world was totally different than how it is today. So you, and the same thing was true for Daniel. So when he wrote about something that was going to be far into the future, I would think 400 years would qualify as far into the future. Um, we looked at a lot of the actions of Antiochus Epiphanes, and they seemed to match a lot of the things that Daniel saw 
in his vision in chapter 8. I mean, Antiochus uh, did kill a lot of the Jews, which was spoken of in, in chapter 8. Um, he also um, desecrated the temple. He stopped, stopped the worship that the Jews would have done. And even the 2,300 evenings and mornings that are spoken of in Daniel 8 seem to match up to the time um, in which Antiochus Epiphanes stopped the act of worship of the Jews. I mean, um, as I told you last time, uh, some believe even to the very day. And that's the way I tend to think about prophecies, that they're fulfilled in every detail. So the time frame in which Antiochus invaded and controlled um, Jerusalem until the time when the temple was restored seems to be about 2,300 days, um, or it's very close to that, if not. And then we saw how ultimately the Seleucids uh, were defeated by the Jews, uh, ultimately leading to a peace treaty between the two, in which the Seleucids never came back into um, Judah again, and that gave way to the Hasmonean dynasty, which reigned for about 100 years before Rome came in and conquered Judah. So all those time frames seem to make sense, seem to, in my mind, to fit with what um, is written in Daniel chapter 8. So you remember we used the book of First Maccabees to get the historical perspective. We could have used other historians who wrote about the same time frame, about the same time that the book of Maccabees was written, and it would have been very similar. Maybe not quite so glamorous for the Jews as um, the, the, um, the writer out of the Hasmonean dynasty wrote, because he was a Jew, but it would have been very, very similar in time frames and the descriptions that would have been given. So uh, I tend to believe that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did fulfill the prophecy that was given in Daniel 8. Now, with that understanding, that doesn't mean that the, what was given in Daniel chapter 8 doesn't foreshadow something that is yet to be done into the future. You know, you've always heard that history repeats itself well, in the same way, I think some of these actions that Antiochus Epiphanes did against the Jews will be repeated in the end of the age. And so um, we'll look at a couple of things this morning out of the book of Revelation to relate back some of these we've looked at before. But again, I just want to kind of summarize what we've seen in chapter 7 and 8 to give us a framework to begin chapter 9. So... Um, um, one of the most interesting points about Antiochus that is only given in a shadow in the scriptures but is given clearly in the historical documents is that Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to unite all the people that he conquered with one religion, that being the worship mainly of the god Zeus. That he wanted to, he, his thought was this, that if I can get people to give up their ancestral and their historical religious beliefs and worship 
Zeus, then they will forget about their history. They'll forget about their ancestry and we'll all be united together in this one world religion worship. That was his, what he desired to do. And you can see that, um, you know, for many of the Jews, that did happen. There were many people living in Jerusalem and all throughout Judah who did bow their knee to the new gods that Antiochus and his armies instituted. Um, many of those. Later, it's, it's the Maccabees who kill most of those people for their unbelief and for being unfaithful. But um, many, many Jews did give up their ancestral religion and go after um, these new false gods. Uh, new temples built, new shrines built, new altars built throughout Judah, all for the worship of Zeus. And, and many people did follow after that. So this one religion, you can see clearly um, if you just look for it in the book of Revelation. So I want to kind of show it to you show it to you um, over in Revelation chapter 13. Um, we see this one world religion that's somewhat similar to what Antiochus envisioned. So in, in chapter 13 of Revelation, just the very first verse of, the, of that chapter, the scripture reads, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. Now this is uh, the dragon being Satan standing, and um, typically when you see the sea and someone coming up out of the sea in Scripture, what that means, that represents all the people of the world. So one of the people of the world comes to prominence as the devil calls him forth. So that's what's being shown here. That person being called forth, this beast who has 10 horns, is what we know as the Antichrist. Okay, so this is Satan calling him forth, forth the scripture calling him a beast. But that's not the one world religion. The one world religion comes a few verses later, down in verse 11, of this same chapter 13 of Revelation. And I'll read several verses here, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, in his presence. And he makes the first beast in his presence, sorry, and he makes the first beast, and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. 
and he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. So this is familiar to you, a lot of the things that are spoken of here, but what you notice is that what is being instilled by this second beast is the worship of either the first beast or an image of the first beast. And if you don't worship, then you'll be killed. And so this is that one world religion that gives honor to the beast that we see coming up out of the sea in verse 1. That being the Antichrist, this person, the second beast, who is causing all this worship, who performs the apparently miraculous signs of calling fire down out of heaven and getting a large image of the beast that is built during that time, to speak words, um, you, you know it's all fake because what is also fake here is that that beast who comes up is slain as if he is dead and then he comes back to life, clearly trying to um, be a copy or similar to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so all of this is trickery, is sleight of hand, it's uh, deception to cause people to worship this beast. And if you don't, then you'll be killed. This is true one world religion. The difference between this and Antiochus is that Antiochus had the desire to have one world religion, but he didn't have the authority or the power to make it happen. Clearly, a lot of the Jews revolted, did not obey the worship of Zeus, and ultimately defeated the Seleucids. So Antiochus wanted this, but he didn't have the power. In the end of the age, the Antichrist and the false prophet will have both the desire and the power and the authority to make it come true, that if you don't follow after this religion that you'll be killed. So um, the only people who we see who are protected from this are the Jews who God hides in the desert for three and a half years. Everybody else is fair game and many, many of the people during this time will be killed. And so this is true one world religion that Antiochus desired but never had, in the end of the age, it will be true. It'll be fulfilled. So, um, so that's a way that I believe chapter 8 of Daniel foreshadows what's going to happen at the end of the age, as depicted in Revelation. And there are other things. If you go back to Daniel chapter 8, um, you may want to keep your finger over in Revelation, but Dan back in Daniel chapter 8, in verse 25, we see that this um, beast who is a king, who is a kingdom, 
will even oppose the prince of princes, given in Daniel 8, chapter, uh, verse 25, that um, this is that same attempt to try and replace the worship of God with the worship of the king or the beast or uh, however you want to think about it, this power that is in place. And so um, even opposing the prince of princes, that's opposing Jesus Christ himself. Um, clearly we see that the uh, Antichrist in the end of the age does that. His war is against Jesus Christ ultimately. And, and he's slaughtering those who worship Jesus Christ. Um, so he's trying to replace him. Uh, we also see in Daniel uh, 8.24 that that king would destroy mighty people and the holy people. We interpreted that as the Jews being the holy people. And we see that in what we looked at over the last two weeks um, with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, slaughtering faithful Jews on the altar built to Zeus above the altar of God on the 25th of every month. That uh, ritual was carried out. Um, so, and then we see the same thing over in Revelation. Um, if you, we won't, I don't necessarily want to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 7, what you see is a, a picture of heaven during the tribulation time. And there's this multitude of people that the scripture says comes from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. So you have people from all over the world who are standing before the throne of God. So these are people who are true worshipers. No one who is not a true worshiper could stand before the throne of God. And so these are people who truly love God and have given their lives for him. And we know that because one of the bystanders, who's probably an angel, asked um, um, John, sorry, asked John, who are these people? And John goes, I don't know. You tell me who they are. And he says, these are those who come out of the great tribulation. Now, the only way to get out of the great tribulation is to be killed. And so as they're killed as true believers, they then go to stand before the throne of God to give him worship and to wait until Jesus Christ is to return. And it's, um, the scripture says it's a number that no one could count. So just meaning a large number, a huge number of people are killed during the tribulation because they have true faith. Now, did they have true faith before the tribulation? Probably not. They're probably converted during the tribulation. You remember during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, you have the two witnesses who are supernatural, who have powers, who can defend themselves against all enemies, and they go around calling people to place faith in Jesus Christ. That's what their job is. They're the two witnesses. And then in the mid-heavens, you also have angels who are calling people to worship the one true God. So there's a lot of evangelism going on during the tribulation time, but it's not necessarily done by humans. 
is done by angels and by the two witnesses um, who may be angels, may be people who died in the Old Testament, don't know exactly who they are. But um, so there's a lot of evangelism going on during the tribulation. And you can just imagine that people who've been brought up in the church, who've heard this all their lives, but are not true believers, who have not truly trusted Jesus Christ, that during the tribulation times, when they see all this stuff being fulfilled before their eyes, that they probably will trust Jesus Christ. They'll say, oh, all was true. Um, now, there's great deception going on, clearly, during the tribulation, but there also is great witnessing going on during the tribulation. And there will be people who actually come to faith in Jesus Christ, I believe, during that time. And most of them will be killed and are included in this throng that stands before the, the throne of God in heaven. So you see, again, the Antichrist and the false prophet have the power to instill one world religion. And if you don't, you're killed. And that's the way that they get the whole world to worship them, because those who don't are taken out. And so you see chapter 7 of Daniel foreshadowing what will ultimately be true in the tribulation times. That's why I believe it was fulfilled through Antiochus Epiphanes, but it yet foreshadows when history repeats itself. And many of these things that were done by Antiochus are repeated at the end of the age. You go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 when it began, right? Right. Right, which is Israel. Yeah, and you know, we could talk about this for a long time, that the, you know, if you don't consider yourself um, to have an ancestor of Abraham, then the scripture says you're wrong. Because over, you know, and this gets complicated, no question, but there are multiple ancestral trails from Abraham that are given over in Romans. And one of those is who are people who have faith like Abraham had. That is, and the scripture calls you this, you're an offspring of Abraham. So there are these multiple um, physical streams that flow out of Abraham, including Jews who believe and Jews who don't believe. And then um, non-Jews who do believe are considered to be, you know, grafted into the tree. Um, so, I mean, it, maybe one day again I'll teach it. 
um, the, the understanding of what Paul wrote in the book of, um, of Romans will change the way that you think about the world and the way you think about yourself and the Jews. And, you know, most Jews today are unbelieving. They don't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, most of them don't even believe in a Messiah. Something like 85% of Jewish people have given up on the concept of a Messiah. Those people won't be saved, I don't believe. The ones who will are those who have not given up on the concept of a Messiah, the Orthodox. And those people will ultimately be the ones who see Jesus Christ and recognize that he was always truly the Messiah. Well, and we saw that with Antiochus. I mean, desire to commit genocide of the Jews. I mean, that's what he sent his army to do. That was their marching orders, was to kill every Jew who won't worship Zeus that you see. And they weren't able to do that by the, um, by the will of God. He strengthened the Maccabees to fight against them. Um, but that was their desire. And you see the same thing with Hitler desiring to commit genocide of the Jews. Uh, is uh, Certainly all the Crusades to commit genocide again of the Jews. So, I mean, just repeat it over and over and over, but yet God in the scriptures says he always has preserved a remnant. And that today I believe is, there's two groups of Jews. There's the Jews for Jesus who are true believers and then there's the Orthodox Jews who are not true believers, but who I believe will be converted in the end times. And the rest of them are not. And they, you remember when we read Ezekiel, how God brings together all the Jews in the land of Israel, but then he separates out the fat sheep from the lean sheep, the true believers from, or the, true, uh, the unbelievers from the true believers. And even all the people that God brings together at the end of the age don't make it into the kingdom of God. There are multitudes of Jews who are called out because they don't truly believe. So, I mean, this... The Jews, I mean, they, they estimate there's 15 to 16 million, million Jews in the world today. Right. About eight of them are in Israel right now. Right. Yeah, the, the will of God um, is the only thing that has preserved the Jews. And they are moving back slowly to Israel. Like you said, there's about 15 million, half of them in Israel, half of them not in Israel. Um, but they're going back for the wrong reason, <laughs> uh, most of them. They're not going back as true believers. Um, so the plan of Satan, the plan of Satan has always been that if he can wipe out the Jews whom God has chosen, 
then the rest of the world will fall in line and worship him. And if they don't, he'll kill them so that he'll then have all the people of the creation worshiping him. That's what, it, that's what the plan in Revelation is all about. He just ultimately cannot succeed because of the will of God to preserve a remnant of the Jews and to save a multitude of the Gentiles. But that's his plan. That's um, in his mind. That's what he thinks he will be able to accomplish all the way to the end. He just isn't able to when the ultimate king of kings comes to fight against him. But we see it repeated over and over in history. It just culminates at the end of the age. And Antiochus was a foreshadowing of that. I think there have been other foreshadowings of that also. But Antiochus is the one given to Daniel in this dream. Okay, so this is, this is the perspective I, I want us to try and have as we go into the, future, into the further um, visions that Daniel has. Because um, understanding these will help us in those others. Now, you go back to chapter 7, and you'll remember in chapter 7, there were four beasts who came up and were introduced. The most of chapter 7 focuses on the fourth beast, <clears throat> with the others only being slightly mentioned. And you remember these four beasts when they're first introduced, the second one <clears throat> is a, a bear who is humped up on one side. And we saw that as um, being the Medo-Persian Empire. And mainly because it's humped up on one side, the Persians much stronger than the Medians. Ultimately, shortly after their alliance and they take Babylon, then you move to where only you have a Persian king. At first you had dual kingships out of Media and Persia, then ultimately uh, Media becomes a province of Persia and you have just one king. No violence there, no war, um, a little bit, but not, not much of what we would describe as a war of those times and you have a Persian leader. So the humped up side is Persia. Now, I think that is reinforced by the next beast that was introduced, the third beast, because that was a leopard who had four wings on his back. You remember that description, meaning this animal is quick, as a leopard would be quick, but he's super quick, he's super fast, because he's got two sets of bird wings on his back. And so I think that simply means that this animal is faster than any of the other animals, and the animal clearly is introduced as representing a king who will rise from the earth. So I believe, you know, who's been the fastest king in all of history to conquer the uh, significant portions of the world? Well, that would be Alexander the Great. And so I believe this leopard would have been the Greeks and their conquering of the world. So that reinforces the, the dynasty before the Greeks, the one that the Greeks overtook, was Medo-Persia. And so those things fit. And then the fourth beast, which is focused on in great detail and for an extensive passage, would be those who came after the Greeks, which would be the Romans. 
And then the very first beast, we said, well, that would be Babylon itself. Not so much because of what chapter 7 says, but because of what chapter 2 said. You remember in chapter 2 was Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue? And the statue had a golden head, and that head was interpreted to be Nebuchadnezzar himself. So Babylon being the first kingdom, Medo-Persia being the second, the Greeks being the third, Rome being the fourth. And that's the way we looked at chapter 7. Well, chapter 8 is a subset of chapter 7. Chapter 7 doesn't say hardly anything about the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. It gives them one verse where it says that after Babylon, basically, two other kingdoms come. And then you have the fourth beast. So they're given one verse. But in chapter 8 is where the expanse of those second and third beasts are, the middle two beasts of the four beasts of chapter 7. Because we're told explicitly in chapter 8, in verses 20 and 21, that those two beasts that are being described as a ram and as a goat in chapter 7 are... Medo-Persia and Greece. I mean, it's explicit. There's no hint that that's who they are. It explicitly states that's who they are. So there's, there will be people who will try and use chapter 8 to speak of the end of the age. But the Greeks don't resurrect at the end of the age. So putting it in context of what has actually happened in history Chapter 7 and chapter, chapter 8 has to be fulfilled before the Greek empires are destroyed by the Romans. And so that's why I say chapter 8 is fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, but it foreshadows what's going to happen later. So an understanding that four beasts are given in chapter 7 and only the middle two beasts are spoken of in chapter 8 is crucial to the way that you understand all of Daniel. There are many people who teach that is not true. That is not the right way to interpret it. But if you just read what it says, I don't see how you can miss that. When, when the scriptures explicitly tell you that these animals are kings who come from Greece and Medo-Persia, that's who they are. I mean, there's, there's no questioning that. And yet there are people, and you can go read them as well as I can, who say that's not accurate. That's not what he really meant. Um, this was written by uh, forgery in the 100, uh, the second century BC, after all these things had taken place. And so that's why he could say they were Medo-Persia in Greece. Um, they can't prove that. They don't have anything that says that. And there's the more we discover of the cuneiforms and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of those discoveries that were made in the 20th century, then the more that we understand that Daniel is a historically accurate book that was written in the 6th century BC, somewhere around 550, and foreshadowed or wrote about what was going to happen in future times. Um, most people 
I will tell you, even true believing people do not believe what I just said is true. They believe it was written by a forger, called himself Daniel, and written in the second century BC. It's a sad thing when you have true believers who believe that, and yet there are scores of people who truly believe and love Jesus, but yet believe this book is not accurate and was written later. So, um, you know, God help them to see the truth. That's all I can say. Because we're, we're taking this book as written by literal Daniel in 550 BC and being accurate in everything that he wrote. I believe it is. Um, hopefully you do also. Um, so if all of that is accurate, and we looked at this, then that fourth beast who is Rome, based not in Rome, but in Constantinople, is the beast that will be resurrected in the end times. Um, would we call it Rome? I don't think so. But that's open for interpretation, and I won't be adamant about it, but that is a, a Muslim capital today, and I believe it will be in the end times. I could be wrong about that, but um, it's what it seems to be true to me. Um, Yeah, I mean, most people don't believe the scripture is inerrant and inspired by God and always true and accurate and has authority. Yeah, and you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and they're the most popular preachers today in the United States would say that this is outdated and should be discarded and doesn't really give you the pattern of how to live the Christian life. I mean, the most popular ones, I'm not saying the ones who are true, I'm just saying the most popular preachers. And they have scores of people who listen to them and follow that and believe that the scriptures truly are outdated and truly do not pertain to um, our lives today. One last point I want to show you. And we've looked at this before, but it helps, I believe. And that is, you'll remember that uh, in chapter 7, that fourth beast is described as having 10 horns on his head. And then an 11th horn comes up, pulls three of those horns out by the roots, and then controls all the others and controls the beast itself. And so that's an 11th horn that was small but grew exceedingly large, similar to what Antiochus did, appeared as a small horn and then grew exceedingly large. Well, Daniel 7, 7, and 8 give us that description. 
that I'm talking about. Daniel 7, 7 and 8. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and exceedingly strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. So he has eyes like a man because he is a man. It is a person. It is a human being. It's not supernatural. And the beast is different from all the other beasts because this never described as an animal. All the others you could are related to animals. This one never is in the vision of Daniel because it doesn't look like an an, any other animal that he's ever seen before. It has 10 horns on its head. So we, we see this pretty detailed description. And then you look over in Revelation again. In that same verse that we looked at, chapter 13 and verse 1, and you see, and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were blasphemous names. Well, why doesn't he have ten heads if he has ten horns? Because three of them are pulled out by the roots and there's only seven left. And so he has seven heads. Um, so these things match what we see in chapter 7 of Daniel. So again, I think even chapter 7 foreshadows much of what will happen in the end times. And I actually believe that chapter 7, while the Romans devastated the Jews, no question about that in 70 AD, that it's actually speaking of the end times. I could be wrong, but that's the way that I read chapter 7. So in the midst of the visions that Daniel has, God speaks of things that are going to happen before Jesus Christ comes, speaks of things that will happen when Jesus Christ comes, which will be chapter 9, and then speaks of things that won't happen until the end of the age. And so we have to take these in perspective, and if that's the way that we read them, I believe the rest of the book falls in place. If you don't take it that way, you get confused and you state things that the scripture says are explicitly not true. You can also see down in chapter 17 of Revelation, verses 16 and 17, where again, we're looking at these horns on this beast, 17, 16 and 17, and the ten horns which you saw in the beast, these will hate the harlot. The harlot is Babylon. Will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Now, why is it that the beast is destroying the seed of the world, which is full of 
evil and harlotry and hates God. Why would that happen? The next verse tells you why it happens. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God is fulfilled. So God uses the Antichrist and all those nations who are united with him to destroy Babylon, which is the seat of harlotry and evil in the world, because he puts it in their hearts to do so. So who's in control here? Pretty clear, right? That God is. When he uses the Antichrist and those who are united with him to destroy that which he hates, pretty much is conclusive that God is the one who's orchestrating what happens here. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are cataclysmic natural disasters. And in the midst of that, I'm trying to get the proportions right, I know a third of the people are killed to start with, and then I believe another third of what remains, which would be a fourth of the people, are destroyed again. So you have something like 50% of the world's population which is killed by natural disasters. Volcanoes erupting, earthquakes, tsunamis resulting from those, just, just pestilence, disease, because there's so many dead bodies everywhere. And so the world is desperate. You know, the three and a half billion people, if that happened today, closer to four billion, would be desperate for someone to come and take control and make this go away. And that is what the Antichrist portrays himself to be, is that savior of the world. And the world is desperate for it because of... Yeah. Right, because people are desperate for a savior. And so that's how he comes to power. And as soon as he comes to power in that way is when he changes and becomes a dictator of the world and destroys many of the kingdoms of the world and goes after and can't go after the Jews because God has them hidden and protected. So much to unfold, right? But I want you to have this broader perspective as we go into chapter 9, which speaks of the time when Jesus Christ comes to the earth and what happens. I think is given pretty clearly in chapter 9. Now, before we get to that part, which everybody wants to run to, there's this wonderful prayer of Daniel that is extensive and goes on for a long time. We'll probably spend two or three weeks going through that prayer because of what Daniel says is astounding. And the way that he views the history of his people, the Jews, is just astounding. And so we'll want to spend some time to understand as Daniel understood. So that's where we'll head, Lord willing, next week is into the first verses of chapter 9. Thanks for your time.